Jack Leslie, the son of an English mother and Jamaican father, would be called up to play for England in 1925. One of the biggest honours for an English football player, even today. He received the call-up, but was denied a spot, due to the colour of his skin. His name should have been remembered, forever, as England's first black player. But instead, he's remembered in bronze, immortalised in statue form. Another story in the history of England's rampant racism. Had he been white, he would have certainly been an English international player, remembered as one of the greats. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 85 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and as always I'll be your host today. Today's episode is all about racism in football as you can probably tell by the story of Jack Leslie. Now this episode could go on and on and on because it seems like racism in football is not only a historic issue but also a current problem that doesn't seem to be getting better all that quickly. Whilst we aren't in a place where bananas are being thrown on the pitch Um, In its biggest instance, racism does still show itself on social media, which we saw following the loss of the European Football Cup final to Italy. Black players were sent monkey emojis and jeered in the comments with racial slurs. Racism in football is often portrayed to be a huge, unfixable issue, as it is a manifestation of societal racism, and arguably won't be fixed until racism in wider society is, on a global level. But I think this episode will uncover not only the covert racism of fans um, and people that go and watch football games, but also racism within the institution that has an impact to who gets selected for teams um, and who has a chance to show themselves as the future stars of the footballing world. We'll be starting with the story of Jack Leslie, the inspiration for this episode, and then looking at the history of black men in the sport in England. We'll then be thinking about some of the historic black women in English football and why there have been so few. Then, finally, we'll be having a somewhat intersectional conversation today and looking at the barriers that black girls face in football at grassroots and higher levels and whether or not we can see racism in football changing anytime soon. Okay, so now the story of Jack Leslie. Now, Jack Leslie was born in Canning Town in 1901 Um, and so he was from East London, um, but ended up playing for Plymouth Argyle in 1921 until 1934. He became captain of that side, he was the first black captain, um, and he played inside left, he was um, a goal scorer, and he was um, set to become, as we said, the first non-white player to represent England when he received a call-up at international level in 1925. Um, He was named in the team, but when it came to the FA coming to see him and he says, um, and he said to a journalist in the 70s that the FA, um, you know, selector did not come to see his football skills, but to see his face. And it was then he was denied the opportunity um, when they realised he was, um, unquote, a man of colour. Um, as opposed to being white. His mother was English um, and his father was Jamaican. Um, and it's quite interesting. The kind of story has been uncovered in, for the most part, by um, a group that set up the Jack Leslie campaign in order to honour Jack Leslie. Um, and they the ori- original plan was to um, create a statue and raise money for a statue to honour 
the footballer that was denied an England cap in 1925. Um, and so kind of through their website and some of the work that they've done in their campaign, they um, have used like primary sources like newspaper articles about his ability just to kind of highlight the story. And there's quite an insidious nature to the story, I think, um, in a paper that followed up on the query um, where, you know, people asked kind of, well, why hasn't Jack Leslie been selected? And in the sense of he was selected, it was never explicitly said by the selectors, it's because you're black, um, which is, you know, very typical of English racism. Um, However, the um, Daily Herald on the 28th of October um, kind of had an inquiry from a reader that said, you know, Jack Leslie was down to play for England as a reserve and this was made public, um, but, you know, he didn't join the team for the game against Ireland. Um, Kind of, why isn't that happening? Um, And a statement was put out and it says, um, and I quote, in an endeavour to discover why Leslie did not go as a reserve, as reserve to Ireland, we rang up the Football Association yesterday and were informed that Leslie had not been chosen. Upon making a similar inquiry at the offices of the Press Association, we were told that at the meeting of the Football Association, Leslie was announced as a reserve and his name appeared in many papers which published the English team the same evening and following morning. Um, So it was like he was announced um, and then all of a sudden he wasn't. Um, And this had happened to another player, but the other player was actually injured. So they were announced, they became injured, obviously didn't play because they couldn't and weren't taken to um, the game in Ireland. Jack Leslie was not injured. He played in his local club game um, that kind of same, same weekend and same week. So it was very clear that, you know, Jack Leslie, who was the one who was interviewed and, you know, later on in the 70s by this journalist, and he, he felt as if, you know, they had come to see what he looked like and his face and did not want him playing. Now, we don't know, you know, the names of the people who didn't want him playing or the situation that was happening inside those, those you know, rooms and, and meetings and boardrooms and tables where... Um, people with power were deciding. Um, however, it's probably the case that, you know, he was selected, they figured out he wasn't white, um, and pressure was put on for him to be removed by maybe not all the, the people that were making decisions, but by enough of them for um, his call-up to be retracted. Um, and it's interesting, actually, that they didn't know that he was, well, half Jamaican um, before making that selection, because at the end of the day, he was just a good footballer. You know, he was captain of the team. He had made um, so many good appearances and scored so many goals that it wasn't really an issue um, that he wasn't, you know, full white. Um, until it was an issue when it would come to representing England. Um, the Jack Leslie um, campaign have actually um, kind of put a comment about the idea that you know, they're accusing the FA of racism. Um, And I kind of just want to read out um, a little quote they have on their website, which I think is quite interesting. And it says, Some people have suggested it is scandalous that we are accusing the FA of racism. We've not accused anyone, and of course, we don't know if any specific committee member spoke out in that way. Conversely, we do know it's likely that one or more actually spoke in favour of Jack. The 14 members either changed their mind as a committee once they all became aware of Leslie's heritage, or they were pressurised to conclude that the inclusion of Jack Leslie was not appropriate. However, it came to pass, whoever pushed back against his selection, it happened, because of the colour of Jack's skin. 
and the FA allowed it to happen. But then, so did everyone, because it was simply accepted. Um, and I think this is quite an interesting statement, as it um, very diplomatically does not accuse the FA, per se, of racism. However, the facts are there. You know, he was asked to play, and then he was not asked to play. Um, and so whether you want to accuse the FA as a whole body of being racist or one of the one or more of the 14 members on the committee that decided, um, you know, I don't think it's really relevant. At the end of the day, there was a man with talent that was barred from playing because of the colour of his skin. And that is just unacceptable. Um, and it would be, you know, another 53 years before Viv Anderson, um, the first black player to win a full England cap you know, and would go on to play in 1978. Jack Leslie um, was posthumously awarded an honorary cap in October 2022, which is why the story kind of came to light um, in recent times. That's 97 years later, 97 years after being denied the chance to represent the country he called his own and home. Um, now, it's interesting then when you pair that with the statement of, you know, people accusing the foundation, the campaign of calling the FA racist um, as if they weren't. Um, yeah, it took them 97 years to kind of put that um, wrong right. Um, and I wondered if, you know, this is what making the wrongs of history looks like. Is it giving the awards that were due? Is it putting up statues to honour those that should have been great of their own accord? Um, or been allowed to be great. Um, you know, can lessons be learnt from this? Will they be learnt from this in the footballing world? Um, and will this have an impact at all on contemporary football matters when it comes to racism and discrimination um, across not just race, but gender and sexuality and things of that nature? Um, the story of Jack Leslie is obviously a sad one. Um, and, you know, it took literally um, a campaign being drawn up and, and created and its its aims were to you know raise funds as I mentioned for that statue of Jack Leslie at Home Park where he played professionally for Plymouth Argyle also to promote and share Jack's story which it's done so well and to celebrate diversity and to combat racism um, and this kind of all came out of the kind of 2020 moment um, that we saw um, with the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and, you know, his story got, got more traction over time. But it's interesting that it, it took so long for it to happen, really. Um, and his name isn't often called and we think of some of the footballing firsts when it comes to race. Um, but I did want to talk about some of the other historic firsts in some ways um, when we think about the sport of football and this episode is going to be quite a lot of different people sharing the stories of them and um, some of the kind of things that they achieve despite you know going through this sport and that's clearly shown itself to to be quite racist and intolerant at times one of the kind of famous names in the history of football um when it comes to black players is arthur wharton who is widely considered to be the first black professional footballer um he's definitely the first within the english football league but there were um, amateur players such as robert walker of queen's park and andrew watson who played for scotland internationally um, at a similar time and potentially even earlier than um, arthur wharton Wharton was born in 1865 in um, what is now known as Akragana, then it was Jamestown in the Gold Coast. His father was from Grenada and his mother was a Ghanaian member of the Fanti royalty. 
Um, he moved to England in 1882, aged 19, to actually train as a Methodist missionary, but became an athlete quite soon after arriving. Starting in athletics, he was the first official fastest man in 1886, and his record stood for 30 years. He also played cricket and rugby and was a cycling champion, and eventually got into football. First, he played for Darlington Football Club as a goalkeeper, but he was also a winger. He played for several successful teams during his career in the late 19th century. He joined the Volunteer Training Court during World War I. He was married and worked as a colliery haulage worker in Yorkshire after retiring from football in 1902. He died in 1930 and was buried in an unmarked pauper's grave um, as he was not financially able to, well, not obviously pay for his own funeral, but um, there wasn't money to pay for that. Um, and until 1997, he was not actually given a headstone um, as it was a pauper's grave. So in 1997, um, there was a campaign by the anti-racism campaign group, Football Unites, Racism Divides, um, and he was given a headstone then. In 2003, he was inducted into the English Football Hall of Fame and recognised for his impact on the game. Um, and in 2014, a 16-foot statue of him was erected at St George's Park to honour him. So again, another statue um, for another black player that was not, should we say in this case, um, celebrated or appreciated um, as he should have been at the time. Um, having broken down so many barriers um, and faced, I'm sure, no doubt, adversity due to the colour of his skin um, and the fact that, you know, he wasn't born in England and he was coming over from um, from Ghana. Now, of course, there were many players in between Arthur Wharton and Viv Anderson, the man I'm about to mention next, who was the first black man to play a full international match for England. He was born in 1956, so around 55 years after Jack Leslie, and was called up to play for England in 1978, 53 years after Jack Leslie was called up, but this time he actually, um, the black man actually got to play. Um, it's kind of crazy to think about how long that gap was when there were players playing in leagues at high standards and levels in this kind of gap between the um, the two. Um, Anderson earned 30 caps uh, playing for England. He also played at club level, played for Nottingham Forest, Arsenal, Manchester United, Sheffield Wednesday, Barnsley and Middlesbrough. Um, and he was also um, awarded um, an MBE in 1999. And in 2004, he was inducted into the National Football Museum Hall of Fame. And if you remember, this is actually only one year after Jack Leslie was inducted into the English Hall of Fame, Football Hall of Fame. Um, and it just shows how long it's taken for Jack Leslie to get a scrap of recognition. Um, and also maybe the difference in the early 20th century and what that was like um, in terms of colour bars. And I've kind of got to use the word colour bar in the term quite um intentionally here and I'm I'm not speaking about you know the official government um legislative color bars that we might see in the segregated south in America um but you know I'm thinking about the kind of unofficial comments that lead to color bars um and kind of individual individualized um kind of opinions about race and how what race and how it should kind of function within society um you know the armed forces there's a color bar there that the likes of dr harold moody had to fight against um segregation in hotels which Dewey constantine was battling in the um, early 20th century race riots um, in some of the port cities in the aftermath of world war one because of similar racist policies 
Um, so it kind of speaks to the kind of early 20th century in a very generalising and, and blanket statement kind of way. Um, you know, we know there was still racism in the late 20th century and it manifested in different ways. There were still colour bars, if you think about Bristol and the bus boycott and, you know, them not accepting non-white drivers. Um, and maybe, you know, I'm recording the day that um, Rishi Sunak has been announced as um, Prime Minister. Um, it's funny, you know, every time I come back to record an episode, we've got a new Prime Minister. I wonder who we'll have next week. Um, hopefully he'll still be there, but um, already the kind of barrage of racial abuse on Twitter and on social media platforms and coming on radio interviews of people saying, oh, they can never vote for the Tories again under Rishi. It's just it's just not acceptable. Um and whatever you think about his politics at the end of the day, um, racism is unacceptable. And the fact that people are having these opinions solely because, in a lot of cases, um, he's an Indian man. Anyway, enough of a tangent there. Although I will say, I feel like I've been controlling my tangents recently. I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, but I've really been reining it in and trying to stay on task and on topic. And we're moving on to our next kind of point of this episode. And thinking about black women in English football, how often do we do that? Not very. Um, I wanted to make sure this episode didn't just focus on black men because, you know, they're not the only people that played football um, and had issues of racism within football. Um, so the story in the women's game now, just some statistics for you, because we all know that, um, you know, the eyes aren't really on the women's game. Well, they were this year um, when the Lionesses um, did so well. Um, but between 2010 and 2020, there have been 67 men's international players across all races 33 of them have been black which makes it about 49 percent in that exact time there have been 72 women who have been international players across all races only 14 of them were black which is only 19 percent and yeah you might be thinking well you know only three percent of the population is black so that's still an overrepresentation. but actually i think the issue to think about here is why there is such a difference between the men's game and the women's game and you know is there such a focus on gendered issues when we think about football and you know when we think about gender in the context of Britain it tends to just be issues pertaining to white women um, and so race falls to the wayside and this is where you know a theory like intersectionality comes in um, and intersectionality is not just kind of piling up the different isms against a certain person and stacking them into some kind of impression olympics whereby some people have three things that might count against them it's actually looking at the picture of a whole um it's looking at the fact that you know in the case of football yes there is definitely discrimination when it comes to issues of gender um and we've seen you know even women that have succeeded in the sport they just face completely different expectations and are held to such a different standard to the men um that's kind of one part and parcel of the issue um however then we think about working class women working class white women working class black women working class women of different sexual orientations you know different religions how is that going to impact them in different ways um and i kind of wanted to do that a little bit today by thinking about black women um especially from potentially working class backgrounds um because of the way that the kind of recruitment processes in football function um but before i get into all of that we're going to give a little bit of history we're going to shout out some of the um women that have been playing the game as late as early sorry um as the 1800s um and look at the kind of history there as we did with men emma clark is 
known as and has recently, somewhat recently anyway, been discovered to have been Britain's first black female footballer who's recorded to have played in the 1890s. Born in 1876 in Lancashire, she started out as a confectioner's apprentice and was playing football in the streets. Um, However, she began playing for St James's Park and Portman Road in front of thousands of fans. Her club career beginning in 1895 and she was known as the, and I quote, fleet-footed dark girl on the right wing. Um, Her records have been really difficult to collate due to um, the popularity of the surname in the team she played for. Um, And historically, Clark has actually been mistaken for a goalkeeper, Carrie Boosted, who was described in historical records as coloured. But again, another example of a player um, who wasn't white playing as early um, as the 19th century. Confusion has ensued um, and it's kind of not until recently that Emma Clark's story has been uncovered um, and discovered um, in a kind of similar way in some cases to Jack Leslie's story. Um, but again, a player, a name that we're not really that familiar with, even though um, there are archival records of her existing. Um, Kerry Davis was England's first black woman international. She was born in 1962 in Stoke-on-Trent uh, and made her debut in 1982 and played for England um, until 1988. She made 82 appearances for England, scored 44 goals. Um, she played at club level club level, sorry, for Crewe, Alexandra, Liverpool and Croydon and she also had um, a time in her career where she played in Italy. Um, She was actually honoured during England's game at Wembley last month um, against Germany. Um, That was England women's um, game that they played recently and very interesting again that you know she was honoured then getting the recognition she deserves but in 2022. Now Hope Powell Um, is another name that came up in my research and I kind of wanted to share her story and some of the things she had to say um, because it kind of links in to some of the barriers that black girls in football face today Um, and she was the first ever full-time coach of England women's football team in 1998. She was born in Lewisham to Jamaican parents but grew up in Peckham. She had many successes as a football player winning 66 caps for England. She played for Millwall, um, Lionesses, Friends of Fulham and Croydon and started her coaching qualifications at the age of just 19. Um, in 2003, she became the first woman to achieve the UEFA Pro Licence, which is the highest coaching award available. Um, she kind of became so renowned that it was speculated that she would become the first female manager in the men's in men's football um, after being linked with Grimsby Town at the time. Um, and she said that people quite often said, and I quote, Oh, Hope is coaching to give something back. It was nothing to do with that, she said. I wanted to get paid in the game. I wanted to stay in the game and I thought coaching was the way to do it. Um, She's currently manager at Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, And funnily enough, the story um, of her kind of successes starts with her being kicked off the school team for being a girl, which links directly into the next segment about the barriers for black girls in football today. Um, And... Hope Powell's story is interesting, um, not just because of that kind of fact, but the kind of awareness she had about longevity in the game and knowing that it wouldn't be as a player uh, forever. She had those football um, coaching qualifications ready um, so that she would have a long career and her career extends till today. Now, uh, in an interview and in kind of several comments that Hope Powell has made, um, she notes that the lack of racial diversity um, in England teams 
are kind of proportionate to the lack of diversity in women's leagues. Um, because obviously, um, you know, people that can play for England um, come from people playing in teams that are English. Um, and so, you know, the number of black women players that are eligible to play um, and that what could translate into England national team selection um, really does depend on how many women are in the league. And when Hope was asked, she notes that, you know, if they aren't there, then they can't be in the England team. Um, which kind of speaks on those first statistics we thought about. Um, and kind of in her career and throughout, some of the issues she has encountered, I think, speak to the situation in football, which is in many ways financial, in women's football, that is, um, as well as um, kind of coming down to other things. And, you know, in this newspaper article that, that was um, was done, it said that, Sometimes her fights were as basic as convincing superiors to provide more footballs. Basic things like equipment. Um, other challenges have been um, with the provision of youth teams, national youth teams, to grow backroom staff, schedule more international matches um, in line you know, with other top women's national teams. And the Lionesses are seeing um, success now and you know, they're a successful squad and a successful side. Um, but, you know, could this have, have come earlier with, with more, you know, support in the right places and, and more funding um, into into the lower leagues so that, you know, there was actually a pipeline to bring up players of such talent to the England squad? Now, and I quote, um, Powell says that women's football became a middle class sport and less accessible for inner city urban kids who cannot get to the regional talent centres, ZRTCs, because of affordability. In order to fulfil licence requirements, some centres have, have moved out of urban areas into the suburbs. Kids of lower-income families can't afford to access them and therefore fall out of the elite pathway opportunities. Um, and this was in She Kicks, which is um, a women's football magazine, and it was an interview done by Jen O'Neill, if you wanted to read that. Um, and this is a view that's also shared... Um, you know, by other players, Anita Asante said that when I began playing, um, the clubs all had centres of excellence and they were accessible in cities. Arsenal were at Islington and Hackney. That cast a wide demographic net. Transport was easier. Kids did not um, need to have to get parents who were able to drive them to venues. Some could travel independently. Others go with adults on public transport. Now many training grounds are in rural areas. They are more challenging to get to. I look back and wonder whether I would have been able to get where I got to. And I think this speaks to an issue. It happens in the men's game as well. Um, you know, if you're not living in an area where you can easily access um, the kind of training grounds and the venues, or you don't have a parent that drives, um, which, you know, in London, uh, a lot of working class people cannot and do not have a car um, because, you know, they can barely drive it and probably have to pay for parking and all sorts of things and congestion charges. Um, and uh, a lot of, of deprived areas are in, in London um, and in the north of England as well. And so this kind of speaks to the issue of, of working class children and working class black children, especially when um, black people disproportionately are represented in working class areas, communities and demographics. And so... You know, the ability to even get to these training grounds to kind of get your foot in the door is already, a, there's already a ceiling there. There's already a blockage. Um, and 
this is kind of confounded by an issue that the Lionesses were speaking about after they won, which is that a lot of girls don't play football at school. And I was thinking, surely I played football at school myself. And I actually didn't. Well, I did. That's a lie. I didn't play it. Like, it wasn't in the lessons. It wasn't something we had to do. There was a football team. I think I made one appearance. Um, I did play football as a child in primary school, um, but not in secondary school. And I don't know if that's because it's not on the curriculum. I think that's what the kind of um, issue is, you know, your when it comes to sports in school it's kind of down to the mercy of the PE teacher um, and the sports that they teach and what's popular and well in my school it was netball um, and other things we played tennis over over football Um, but yeah if it's not being taught to kids and girls in school you know how are they going to keep up with them you've kind of lost them already Um, they're not going to develop because they've not had the opportunity to play and I think school is a a lot of the time school is where you know you find out what you like you find out your passions you find out the things you're interested in and that you're good at and you have time to kind of hone in and kind of get better at those skills but if you're not ever taught or given the opportunity to even you know think about football skills then it's not going to be something you're able to to do any further um because football is becoming one of those sports that you know you really have to start early to get in in you know in your teenage years where it kind of gets really to crunch time of whether you're going to potentially make it or not um but if you haven't had that then how's that going to work um so you know this is these are some of the issues um in terms of the recruitment of of working class girls um and and black girls as well and there are also cultural elements of of playing football um girls aren't supposed to to be doing things like that you know those attitudes whilst some might just argue they're just outdated and ridiculous they're definitely upheld by some people within society um and how do how do things like that change um in order to see more women um black women specifically uh within the sport and this is quite an, a narrow vision just thinking about black women you know there are also asian women that might be barred from the sport for different reasons um and you know we haven't even spoken about those today so that's not to kind of gloss over but just to speak on the things that i have researched so moving on to our final point can we see racism in football changing any time soon and we've thought about racism in many different contexts today so in the recruitment and the grassroots level with women we thought about um you know the likes of jack leslie actually not being allowed to play because of the overt racism and kind of unofficial color bars existing um and then we've thought about people not getting the recognition they deserve until a lot later on in their life or even after their death because um, they aren't appreciated as black players um, at the time um, and the kind of adversity that they would have had to face as well as, you know, being a good, talented, successful player. Um, I think in the case of of women, the issue is, of course, as we've said, intersectional. Um, young black working class girls are being blocked from even exploring the sport at its most basic and elementary level. Um, let alone higher up and this speaks to having better opportunities for girls girls in deprived areas uh, for black girls uh, and for girls who fit into all of those categories Um, we know there's a different situation for men there's significantly more money in the sport from grassroots um, all the way up um, to the kind of pro pipeline it seems to be a little bit more secure Um, working class boys are given more opportunities to make it however there are some that will still be left out um, dependent on where they live and how accessible the leagues are and the training centres are to them. 
Um, we also know that when players do make it and are playing on the big stage, with the whole world watching, they still face horrendous racial abuse on and off the pitch. Um, and the solution does not seem to be as simple as racism is entrenched into this society. So, you know, how do we get rid of it? Because something um, that is part of everyday society, it's impossible to rid from a sport as if football can be um, separated. You know, um, players in this country have problems when they play, not only in England sometimes, but um, more so in, in different parts of the world, Eastern Europe being one of them, um, where, you know, racism is rife and you know until there are I think greater sanctions on the fans that do things like that and and shout racial slurs and make it uncomfortable um for black players to play um you know things won't change I don't think the sanctions are hard enough for people that do this um social media platforms also have a hand to play in this because you know the amount of abuse that was allowed to pass and the lack of um, accountability not that the social media you know platforms did the racism put out the racial abuse but they managed to put up blockers for so many other things when it was covid um and any kind of information about the vaccine even to this day you get a little warning on covid information being spread um you know kind of make sure you're fact checking it basically due to misinformation why can't certain words racial slurs also trigger a warning like that you know, why aren't they protected? Why aren't people protected on social media platforms more so? There are all sorts of terms that are censored on social media, as they should be. But why not racial slurs? Um, how come they aren't seen as important? And that would translate outside of football as well, um, with so many people facing racial hatred um, online. Now, there are so many different cases of of people um, who have stopped playing the game of football because of racism and discrimination. Some who have persisted um, and had a difficult time in doing so. Um, and this episode was kind of to honour and just remember all of them and, um, yeah, to think about all the different manifestations of racism in football. And I don't know if things will ever change, um, really, uh, in regards to the sport, in regards to society. Um, but, yeah, here are just some of the things to think about when we think about... Uh, the what's it called the the good the good sport the great sport the be- the beautiful game that's the one the beautiful game thank you so much for listening to today's episode about racism in football um i hope you have enjoyed it um and i look forward to being back next week to talk about more things black history and beyond